The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Welcome to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert, and I have a great show lined up for us today. Some of you who are my regular listeners uh, may remember that a couple of weeks ago I was talking with Paul Orselli, and we were talking about the the challenges and opportunities for uh, exporting what what uh, one country knows about uh, museums and cultural heritage to another. And so that got me thinking, who would be really a, the best person to be talking uh, a little bit more about this subject, which I find so fascinating. And it didn't take me long to realize that uh, a dear friend of mine happens to be the uh, best person to be discussing uh, this issue with us today. So I am pleased that my friend and colleague, Michael Day, is with us. Michael is uh, currently the chief executive of the Historic Royal Palaces. I guess you don't really need the V in front of that, uh, which focuses, uh, which is the education and conservation charity in the United Kingdom responsible for the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace, the banqueting uh, house in Whitehall, and a new, uh, a new property that I know Michael will be talking uh, with us a little bit about today. Uh, Michael has an exemplary career. He has taught and lectured uh, both in the United Kingdom as well as throughout the world on issues of uh, cultural leadership, uh, governance, historic site management, and interpretation. Uh, and I will let Michael share with you other aspects of his career uh, that have shaped it and uh, shaped his perspective on uh, cultural heritage management. Uh, so with that, Michael, I want to welcome you to the show today. Thanks, Carol. Good morning to you and good morning to America. It's, it's wonderful to be talking to you. 
Uh, wonderful. Michael, why, as I said, I really truncated your very exemplary uh, uh, biography, but, uh, and, and you don't have to recount everything, but I find it very helpful for our listeners if you can just ground us a little bit in your, um, in your history and give us a little bit about your career trajectory and, most importantly, what personal and or professional experiences have really influenced your career the most. Yeah, it's had it's had four big stages. Um, I trained as a history curator straight out of university, and for eight or so years um, was a was a young curator. Um, and then at the age of thirty, got my first management role um, at the Ironbridge Gorge Museum, um, and went from managing nobody um, in my previous roles of curator to managing, I don't know, 100 or 150 people, not all directly, but they were all under me in the organization chart. And that was an extraordinarily profound change and a very sudden one. And of course, at that time, this was back in the uh, early, mid-1980s, there was no such thing really as the idea of management training in museums, certainly not in the UK. Um, And the idea that even that management was practiced so much as just administration or being above others in hierarchy. Um, that was just the idea. So, so that was a very big shock and I realized actually that I enjoyed it as much as, in fact, if not more than the curating that I'd done. I did that for four years and then went on to take my first leadership role in Jersey in the Channel Islands um, and ran the Jersey Heritage Trust for 16 years. Uh, and that, again, was a big step to, to being the number one person in the organization. And then finally in 2003 came to Historic Royal Palaces, which was a big step in terms of scale. So in Jersey, I had had maybe 100 people at the end working in the organization at uh, Historic Royal Palaces. We've now got uh, uh, 800 uh, people on the staff team. So the scale just changed enormously. Uh, so there you are, my career in a nutshell. Well, and, uh, and certainly the additional challenges of managing uh, people remotely at a variety of sites, I'm sure, complicates things as well. It's, it's good to hear that you still enjoy the, uh, the management side of, of, of the work. I know it can burn out so many, many people. There are so many uh, aspects of the, of, of the work from uh, uh, fundraising to day-to-day management issues to i'm sure uh being the uh, the spokesperson for this uh this very large organization uh congratulations and, and, and the enjoyment comes it's really from the people I have the most wonderful team of people working here who constantly surprise me in a, in a, in a great way I mean I'm not in a way surprised that they do great work but simply surprised at how unusual and different and, and creative they so very often are in the face of, of both wonderful opportunities but also sometimes really really difficult challenges and, and I genuinely take a great joy from their achievements and the role that I play the small role that I play in in helping them to to to, to achieve what they do, um, and that's not to say it's always wonderful, but but more often than not, it is. Well, I think that that uh, that probably does uh, encapsulate it. If you can continue to get uh, your energy and. Uh, 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 excitement from uh, working with others. Um, I think that that's that's very uh, that's good, and not only good, but it probably is the thing that 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 keeps you going. I'm interested, Michael. Um, what 
as you said, when you first started out, there was no such thing as management training. Uh, I know uh, because you and I were there at the same time. We both attended the Museum Management Institute uh, the, at, that was uh, developed by the J. Paul Getty Trust when it was still in uh, Berkeley, California, uh, which you know, certainly to me was the first opportunity that I had had to have any kind of formal museum management training. I'm just wondering what, uh, what trends you have observed in terms of the changes in philosophy of cultural leadership, the expansion of cultural leadership, uh, both in uh, the United Kingdom and perhaps since you, you do... Uh, uh, do work internationally, uh, say in uh, Europe, uh, compared to the United States, and perhaps even in the uh, the Middle East and China, where there's such growth going on right now. Yeah, so I mean, and there's there's in a way so many di- different dimensions to that question. I think it's interesting that when we both went through the, the Getty, the wonderful Getty experience, which was a very profound and um, and formative one for me in 1993, and has actually I think ch- changed my career path ever since then uh, in a very positive way. But the model then was still how you applied what was essentially a business model, a, 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 a business idea of management and of leadership, into the, the, the slightly more arcane and strange world that, that we inhabit uh, in museums and heritage organizations. I think increasingly over time we've understood that there actually, while there are lots of common ideas, there is the, the practice of those of leadership in the context of non-profit cultural organizations and especially museums is, is, is in some ways markedly different and, and therefore and needs to be understood as such. So the idea that you can just take somebody who's been a successful leader or manager in the for-profit world and put them into a, a museum and expect them to be successful now, I don't think anybody, anybody really believes in. Um, so I think that's been one change. I think another big change that's happened over time has been the breakdown of barriers within the, the, the wider cultural sector. So, uh, you know, we were, we were taught a, a, um, a philosophy and an approach to museum management as, that it was somehow different to other cultural organizations. Certainly in the UK now, um, cultural organizations work very typically across their own boundaries, theatres, museums, libraries, archives, uh, visual arts organisations, um, opera, and so on, and, and, and see much more of the similarities between themselves than the differences. And, and I think that's been enormously positive and, and creative. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly, as I said, of course, our audiences are changing as well, which means that the leadership of our organisations needs to change in response to what our audiences um, expect from us. And that seems to me to matter. And across the world, clearly um, the growth of the internet and, and digital communication means that boundaries are being broken down um, and that uh, I think broadly speaking, the idea that leadership is practiced in hierarchies, which was the, the standard idea in the past, has begun to disappear. Although societies which are higher, still hierarchical in their, in their culture and tradition find that quite difficult to, to let go of. Um, and I've seen that in both in Eastern Europe and in and in other parts of the of the world. Uh, so there's some for starters. <laughs> oh well, thank you know actually I. 
I did uh, throw you a huge question, Michael, but I appreciate you uh, breaking it down um, a little a little bit more. Uh, why don't and I'd like to, if you don't mind, uh, circle back on on some of those uh, those topics, particularly and 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 I and I certainly have have seen it uh, in my career as well that uh, the idea of applying uh, a a for profit business model doesn't uh, quite fit. Uh, in in uh, in the museum world, I I know, um, uh, and I've said this often on the show. At, at least in this country, we are always looking for the perfect model from somebody else, and then uh, running to apply it to ourselves. Whether it's the Harvard Business School model, whether it is the Disney management uh, visitor uh, services model, whether it's you know um, uh, Google's way of uh, of of enhancing. Uh, creativity, and not to say that any of those are are wrong or bad for museums. I think there's a lot to learn um, when we uh, uh, look out into the world. But I am fascinated by this trend that uh, you've mentioned of creating our own um, uh, unique management uh, uh, structure and an approach, uh, not only for museums but broader cultural institutions. Could you talk a little bit about? Do you have an example or or, or some of the ways in which museums need to be uh, embracing our uniqueness? Sure. Um, here are two or three thoughts. I think the first one is that the for-profit world operates in relatively short time scales with, with short time horizons. So they'll tend to report on their results every six months and will look forward at most two or three or five years as a new model comes along. Museums, in, by contrast, are, are looking at back over centuries often through their collections, perhaps even longer, and see themselves as having a much longer responsibility into the future. So they have to make decisions that respect that much greater um, um, time period. Stuart Brand, um, who wrote a book called The Clock of the Long Now, talks about different waves of time, and museums operate in much longer and slower waves, and yet they have to be very relevant in the here and now as well. So managing the 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 contradiction sometimes, certainly the ambiguity that's caused between managing for today's audiences today and tomorrow and yet being respectful of the deep past and into the deep future is quite unlike most for-profit organizations. So I think that's one big difference. A second one is that most museums and heritage organizations have multiple stakeholders and the relationship with those stakeholders is often complex, very nuanced, and has to be handled with immense care. And when I've seen people come from the business world into our world, they just, they think it's coming out coming to a small organization that ought to be just fun and straightforward. And they're usually surprised, sometimes even shocked about the level of complexity that exists there. I think another one comes with the difficulty of pinning down success. Um, so in the business world, usually success is measured in some financial terms and, you know, stakeholder value or end-of-year profit or whatever it is. Um, in, in museums, the, the measures of success are many and varied and often contradictory. Um, so in achieving one, you often uh, find that you're not uh, achieving another. I think a 
Another area is that we are seriously undercapitalized and under-resourced for our ambitions. Um, so most museum organizations are really ambitious and are usually not resourced to deliver. So it usually feels like we're failing. Um, and that's a difficult thing to manage when you're very uh, ambitious to do more and better when you don't have the resource to do it. And then there's the level of stuff. Passion. People are genuinely passionate in their work. Uh, and that brings its own own difficulties as well as its own, uh, own benefits. So but I think there are a whole lot of things. These are contextual differences in which leadership, leadership has to be practiced differently compared to the business world. Uh, wow, thank you very much. Um, that's, I'm assuming that these are things that, that you have tried to teach um, uh, your students as you have uh, taught in uh, several of the leadership programs um, in, in the UK. Yes, and more widely. And and because I think that that people come to leadership almost by accident in our world, don't they? I mean, I, you know, I don't think many people go in their twenties into into museums or into cultural organisations generally and say, "I wish to be a leader." I think of myself as a leader. They go in thinking of themselves as a curator or a producer or interpreter or designer or an educator or something. And then at some point, they get more responsibility. Leadership is expected of them. And some people grasp it, but it, it comes accidentally. And the, the development opportunities that people have are not structured. And uh, what I've sought to do is to help people develop into better leaders from within the sector, because I honestly believe that we'll, we will all be better off if we can develop our own leaders, grow our own leaders from within rather than import them from outside, because I think we need it there in our organizations, that they need to be led by people who, who get them at the level of their soul. You know, they, it's not just a process or a technique. You need to feel the value of these places and the power of them, and you need to feel that in your leadership. And it, it, it doesn't mean to say you have to be born and brought up in them, but it sometimes helps <laughs> rather than being imported from outside. Yes, uh, you, you know, I am so. I've I've uh, interviewed several people about uh, uh, the issue of leadership, and I've really never heard it put so uh, clearly and concisely. So, thank you very much, Michael. I think that that is something that we need to keep in mind. It's almost as if uh, you can't teach the vocabulary. Uh, and you have to sort of live that vocabulary for a while, um, so th- so that you and uh, your staff can uh, can understand each other. Uh, we are before I plunge into another subject. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, particularly the work that you are doing at uh, HRP right now. Uh, we are going to take a very short break, and we will be back in a moment. Uh, this is uh, Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. You can also tweet me your responses at, uh, at MuseWrite, uh, hashtag museum underscore life. We will be back in a moment. Thank you. caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. 
You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ooh, Are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you learned how to play the money game? There are all kinds of rules when it comes to money. Should I spend it now or save it for the ultimate rainy day? If I make a tiny mistake now, will it really affect everything in the long term? For the answers, tune in to Cultivate Your Financial Health with Wayne Firebaugh. You'll come away from each show with a better understanding of the rules of money and how it sets up your future. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time with a replay Saturdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert and, uh, for Museum Life, and today we've been talking with uh, Michael Day, uh, who has given us some really thoughtful and, and, and uh, truly passionate and inspired thoughts about uh, museum leadership and, and its distinctiveness. So, Michael, to sort of follow up on that, um, you have been at the Historic Royal Palaces for uh, uh, a few years, since 2003. So, could you, first, I think you probably need to ground all of us in uh, in, in the sort of the business model. I, I, many of us, I, I know I wasn't not familiar with the, um, the the concept of the historical uh, historic royal palaces, what they do, how they operate, uh, what what your uh, constraints and opportunities are. So, if you could do that, and then perhaps go into some of the lessons that you've learned, how you've applied your leadership model, and uh, some of your successes, which I know are many. Sure. So you mentioned right at the outset the six sites, so I'm not going to rehearse them again, but I imagine that many of your listeners will be familiar with at least one or two of them. The Tower of London is visited by a very large number of American visitors every year. In fact, as a whole, we have about 700,000 visitors from the USA every year. So I guess that puts us in quite a, you know, a, a distinguished league of, of cultural, uh, cultural destinations for American visitors. Um, we are a charity and a non-profit charity, uh, and 
we, unusually, certainly for the UK, uh, get no funding from government. Um, so we're, in, in some ways, m- more closely aligned to uh, an American non-profit organisation uh, rather than, than a British one, which, which are often uh, government-funded, at least to some extent. Uh, so we turn over uh, annually, in, in financial terms, £80 million. So that would be about $120 or so million dollars, uh, a year with 800 staff and around 4 million visitors. And that money is all self-generated through a range of uh, income sources, principally admission receipts, retail, catering, usual range of fundraising, functions and events, and lots of other bits and pieces. Um, and all of that pays for the operation of the now six palaces and their long-term conservation. Um, we spend a very great deal on the fabric uh, and the interiors and the landscapes. Um, and uh, on the learning programs and community engagement work uh, and digital work that we do to promote uh, the stories of the palaces and the learning that can be had from them. So it's in, in one way very simple, and, but it's, a very also, it's also something that's very, very high public profile. We have the crown jewels, uh, we have the beef eaters, uh, we have some of the most famous historic sites and their stories uh, in the country. And they're of worldwide interest. Absolutely, and I, I, uh, I had a wonderful opportunity several years ago when a group of us actually were allowed to stay at uh, at Hampton Court. And uh, while it was a great privilege, I understand that it we were it wasn't just because we knew the executive director. There are actually <laughs> opportunities uh, to uh, to stay in some of the uh, the uh, outbuildings in the palaces. Is that also part of the the uh, revenue uh, generation? that you've developed Yes it, yes, it is. Um, and, and the model over time has, has actually been very successful um, to the extent where in, in, in the last three or four years, as public expenditure in the UK has come under really severe pressure and many other cultural organizations, museums, have had to cut uh, expenditure and reduce their programs. We've been able to expand because the business model has been so successful and we have uh, increased our visitors, increased our income, uh, and therefore, we've been able to uh, to reinvest the, the surpluses that we've been making into a whole range of new developments uh, on site, in our programming, in our digital work, um, and, and really push out our work much more widely than we were able to do before uh, and, the, and create more jobs as well. So, so it actually has worked very well. And I actually like the idea very much of everybody from our curators to our cleaners and our accountants through through to our marketers um, to be conscious of the fact that if we don't create uh, places that people want to come and visit um, and pay for insufficient uh, amounts that we can generate income, then none of us will be able to do our work. Uh, And that's a really powerful message that kind of binds us all together um, alongside a very clear sense of of actually that we're not a business but a, a charity with a very strong and founding cause uh, at the heart of what we do. 
Yes, I, I, you know, I was just trying to compare it to, uh, you know, certainly our our national park service uh, and some of our our that are responsible in this uh, in the U.S. for uh, maintenance of some of our greatest uh, national landmarks, and including here in Washington, the Washington Monument and uh, Lincoln Memorial, and all of those beautiful things. But, but it, but of course, um, a portion of that money comes from our uh, our, our federal government. Uh, it, it seems to me that what you what you've instilled in in your your staff is the feeling that they are they are doing work uh, that that has a direct impact on the preservation of these national uh, landmarks that that are in many ways at the uh, the heart of the country. Is that f- uh, fair to say? That, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a, there's a really strong awareness of the fact that we're undertaking in very important work. These are national cultural assets that speak to the story of the nation. And there's no sense that we, we own them. We're only their guardians. Um, and we're their guardians on behalf of the nation. Uh, and we have a big duty of both care into the long-term future, but also to create the widest possible access and opportunity for learning that we can, but within a business model that says unless uh, the, the users pay for that, nobody else is going to. We don't rely on government, and that independence is a very important idea that we cling on to. We, be, we became uh, the charity and non-profit organization that we are in 1998. Previously, we'd been a government organization and had received funding, and that was a very profound moment because from that point on, we've had no government money to run ourselves and I think we'd be we wouldn't want to take any now even if things got difficult we'd rather find our own solutions than to than to to in a way lose the independence of spirit that this organization has and it's self-reliance and self-determination I think that that you know that in itself is a profound change. That that independence, particularly uh, when a government is going through uh, you know, recessions, ours has, yours has. Uh, that that probably does make you sleep a little better at night. That at least you are masters of your own fate, uh, yeah, rather than. <laughs> The being in, in, to, to a large extent, in a way, at least in control of our own destiny. So that if things do go wrong, and for example, after 9-11, uh, I wasn't actually running the organization then, but after 9-11, business numbers dropped very dramatically in the, in the year after 9-11. And again, after London's equivalent, the, the London bombings of, of July 2005, uh, again, business numbers plummeted and our income did as well. And those were really tough times, but through each of those, we found a way to work things out, and eventually the London economy recovered, and um, and we got back to to normal, and then beyond what what had been before. So uh, I, I think that's a good place to be in. Um, uh- Congratulations. I, I, it's, I think that this is a very interesting story. Now, at the same time, I mean, you are, you know, you, you've, you've talked about, I mean, seven, what, 700,000 visitors? 
a year? Uh, no, so four, 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 million, four million visitors a year, of which about 700,000 are American. Um, so uh, uh, that's just to give you an idea of how our visitation breaks down. Four million total visitors to the six palaces now, with, with about 700,000 of those being, being from the U.S. Wow. Okay. Thank. Whoa. I'm. I'm even. I mean, seven hundred thousand had had me. Uh, you know, raising my eyebrows. Four million is uh, absolutely. I'm sure that you uh, are right at the top of uh, international uh, uh, visitation sites. Do but uh, that leads me to a question. Do you? And and this is this is probably. Um, this is a polarity that is probably false, and, and you, I'll just state that at the beginning. But um, I, yeah, I'm interested in how you balance your 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 sites as being obviously your tourist destinations, but I'm assuming too that you are also local community destinations. How do you balance those 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 two groups, or or is there no? Or is it is it the same thing? It's a fascinating question, and actually that notion of balance is one of those big leadership challenges that I think are peculiar to the world in which we operate, because we have, on the one hand, a consciousness of and a duty of care to local audiences, and local can mean the one or two miles surrounding our sites, and in the case of the Tower of London, one of the poorest boroughs in the whole of London, so an obligation to try to provide wide access for for people living very locally, and then a consciousness that we're doing a job for the for London and then for the country as a whole, but also conscious that we're in a way ambassadors for for this country to international visitors. So we've got to provide a great service for all of our visitors and also to be aware that they probably have different needs of us at different times um, because they're, they're actually visiting, visiting us in different ways. Somebody visiting from the U.S. when they're in London for two days has a, a different set of things needs to, to somebody who lives just down the road who can come any time. Uh, so we're just trying to we're trying to cater for all those all those visitors in in different ways, and also reflecting, of course, that there's now a huge huge constituency now visitors who may never come, but are accessing our services digitally as well, um, which is another another big area. Yes, in- interesting. How are you addressing those those uh, you know what is sort of the the virtual uh, visitor, um, knowing that that. Uh, uh, that you can be, you know, ev- everywhere to everyone now. You know, I, I, I listen a lot to the debates that all of us are having around how, about how we use the, the, the opportunities created by the new digital world. And I still feel that, that many people in museums, us very much included, are like wide-eyed children standing there in awe and wonder about all that's possible. And, and like in the sweet shop, we kind of just reach out for all these possible things, not really knowing quite which way to turn. Um, so so I, I mean, we're engaged in all the activities now that, that everybody else is and and sometimes I feel that we're doing it and, and maybe nobody's listening and then suddenly sometimes we do things and we're just conscious of having the most enormous reach um, fresh in my mind as I speak at the moment is this project we have running at the Tower of London 
um, which which is commemorating the uh, 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War in, in 1914. Um, it's called the Poppies Project, and it's uh, we're planting a ceramic poppy um, designed by an artist uh, for each life lost on the British and colonial forces, over 888,000. And through social media, through Twitter, uh, and other forms of social media, we have got the most extraordinary international reach. Apparently, last week, Tower of London Poppies was the most Googled expression in anywhere in the world on that day, uh, last Tuesday. Uh, it was put into Google more times than any other expression. So we're getting a reach now, which through through the through the internet, uh, which is extraordinary to millions and millions and millions of people in some shape or form. Um, and I don't think yet we've understood the power of that. Um, and I think we're still feeling our way into it, um, which is very exciting. Yes. Oh, and thank you for bringing up that project. I, I, I think that it is one to, uh, to keep in mind. Uh, and, and certainly the, um, uh, the, what you are commemorating uh, was, was something that, that was worldwide in scope. Uh, had uh, addressed uh, uh, the history of people in uh, throughout the United uh, Kingdom at the time and, and um, uh, Canada, Australia, and, and many others, uh, I know is very, very meaningful. So it does sound as if you've really hit upon a chord. Uh, and it also sounds as if you, I, I agree with you, I, I too feel very wide-eyed at times and, and almost paralyzed by the, uh, the options and the opportunities in this digi- digital world. And it sounds as if you've applied your leadership to looking, you know, sort of dabbling in some ways, but then charting a direction and then learning from it. We've been we've been experimenting and playing in this world now for a decade or more, as, as, as everyone has. What we've, the, the difference that we've the step that we've taken in the last year or so is to try to be much more strategic about it. So, following a very large piece of work, uh, looking at uh, creating a new digital strategy, uh, we've now committed to a serious piece of investment, um, uh, about uh, $15 million over the next, uh, US dollars over the next uh, five years, uh, into into developing our digital capability, as I say, in a much more considered and strategic way than anything we've done so far. So I should be interested to see where all of that takes us in five years, but recognizing, of course, that just as we embark in, in, in a much more serious way that the whole thing is speeding up all the time. So, um, you know, things are changing uh, at a pace that none of us really understand. I, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I'm assuming too that when you uh, when you're talking about that that significant investment that that part of that uh, is going to go to if it if it hasn't already to uh, probably pretty senior level uh, uh, staff with some very sophisticated knowledge. Am I correct? Yes, we've, we've appointed a, we've appointed a number of senior new people to work on everything from from digitising our assets through di- digitising the whole visitor journey and the way that visitors interact with us right the way through from the first time they think about us to the memories they take home, uh, and then and then through to the whole business of customer relationship management and and all of the other things that follow from that and the marketing and so on. So, so it's a it's a very ser- serious piece of work, uh, and we looked at the work done across. 
the world, and particularly in the US. Um, and, and the Smithsonian was actually a, a model that we, we were really impressed by, the, the work that, that has been done there. So um, we'll see where it takes us. Um, uh, but it'll be an interesting journey nonetheless, I'm sure. Yes, it will be, and and we will continue to follow that both on your website, which is www.hrp.org.uk, and also uh, on Twitter, which is hrp underscore palaces. Uh, and I, uh, I, I definitely am going to continue to watch your uh, your your progression and your knowledge. And with that, we have come to another break in our discussion. Michael and I are both going to sip a little tea uh, at, our, at our break and then we will be back for a final segment and uh, with some very exciting discussion about uh, Michael's uh, newest site the Hillsborough Castle and what, what he is doing there so stay tuned uh, this is Carol Bossert you're listening to Museum Life and we will be back in a moment The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You're tuned in to Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here with Michael Day uh, today. And um, Michael, as as uh, you know, is the chief executive of 
historic royal palaces in the United Kingdom, and we've been talking a lot about uh, leadership in general of cultural institutions. We've been talking about some specific successes and exciting work that he is doing at HRP. And now, Michael, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about uh, a new project that you've shared with me, and I, I now hope you share with our listeners. You have just opened a six-site Hillsborough Castle, uh, and uh, can you tell us a little? Just tell our listeners about you know where that is, what its story is, and then how you're beginning to approach that story. Hillsborough, Hillsborough Castle is the Queen's official residence in Northern Ireland, so it's a departure from us for, from our London base uh, over to over the water to Northern Ireland. Hillsborough Castle sits just outside Belfast. Um, and has been the, the monarch's official residence since the partition of Ireland, uh, which happened in 1920. So Ireland was divided into the, the new republic and then the new country of Northern Ireland uh, just after 1920, and the monarch needed a new place uh, to have an official residence. It had previously been in Dublin, which now was obviously then part of the, of the new republic. So Hillsborough uh, Castle, uh, an 18th century uh, Irish country house, was purchased by the government for the use of the of the monarch when in Northern Ireland and for the, the new governor of Northern Ireland and has had that use ever since. So it's been a royal residence for uh, very nearly uh, 60 years. Uh, um, and uh, Sorry, what am I doing? Yeah, very nearly 90 years. Sorry, my maths is hopeless. Uh, very nearly 90 years. And uh, it has... It's story back into the 18th century is very much the story of, of Ireland. Uh, its, its use as a royal residence from 1920 tells the story of partition. And then, of course, in the last 30 or so years, Hillsborough Castle was the primary location for the series of talks that eventually went to create the peace process that brought an end to the troubles in Northern Ireland. From the 1980s, it was used as the secluded place for important meetings and conversations between all sides that led to a series of agreements from 1980 right the way through to 2010 um, that, that created the new, the new peace in Northern Ireland. So it has a really important contemporary history as well as an ancient one, and there's a fascinating opportunity for us uh, to work with contemporary history of the site uh, within the peace process that's still happening in Northern Ireland, as well as telling its, its former stories. And, of course, to open it up to the public for the first time properly, because up to now it's been uh, off-limits most of the time, apart from on a few special occasions. So, so just so I understand, I mean, it is, it is now a a uh, uh, historic palace. Uh, the the uh, royal family doesn't have doesn't go there anymore. No, no. Actually, actually, unlike all our other sites, it is still a very much a currently used royal residence. Um, although members of the royal family only visit on on a you know relatively small number of days a year. So this year, for example, the Prince of Wales was in Northern Ireland for two days at the beginning of April. The Queen visited in June for three days, and on both occasions, they took up residence there. And a series of uh, events, meetings, and so on happened there. So on those days, when members of the 
royal family there. It will continue to operate as a royal residence, and it will continue to carry out those functions. Uh, and it will still also be the place where the Secretary of State uh, for Northern Ireland has an apartment. But it will also now, for the first time, uh, and, and this will happen in about three years when we've done the necessary investments, be properly open to the public as somewhere that you can visit every day. Um, and it's so that, that's the exciting thing. Somewhere that has previously been private and secluded and off-limits will become a wonderful public asset, both the house and its, and its extraordinary garden. What I think is is uh, certainly has some some parallels, uh, many many parallels to uh, sites that I've been involved with, and and uh, we've talked about on this show that uh, have what I would say you know mixed mixed stories uh, depending on who you talk to. Uh, mm. I I would would uh, assume and correct me if I'm wrong that there are still people. Uh, who look at um, at this site as being a symbol of certainly some not good times, uh, you know, the troubles. Um, uh, people are still alive who remember those directly or who whose families were affected uh, in very dramatic ways. So how, how are you thinking about or beginning to approach the interpretation of this site to ensure that it, uh, you know, doesn't... Um, that, that tells the story completely and properly and really addresses these these multiple perspectives. Yes, and I think, Carol, in, in that introduction to the question, you've, you've really put your finger on the, the most significant uh, challenge for us and, and, and in ways, many ways the most interesting one because the legacy of the Troubles is, is still, at least to some extent, uh, unresolved. There are very many different views, different sensitivities, multiple perspectives in Northern Ireland. And Hillsborough itself has been both, to some extent, a... Um, a I mean, neutral would probably not be the right expression, but certainly, certainly a place where people from different sides of the community have been able to come together to work on solving problems and have been successful in doing that. So that's a, a really positive story. But at the same time, as the Queen's official residence, it, it also has has its own um, its own sort of meaning uh, for for both sides of the community. Um, What's changed in Northern Ireland is that the violence uh, and that, that so that so dominated people's lives for for thirty or more years um, and had such a profound effect has has you know almost entirely disappeared and a new much more positive place is emerging from that uh, and people are working strongly together. Our um, entry into this world is one that we one that we're doing with very great care. We are knowledgeable and expert in running historic sites. We are by no means knowledgeable and expert uh, about Northern Ireland. So the success, if we if we're to have success in telling the site stories for a wide audience uh, and to engage as many people as possible positively we need to do it first of all with great care and respect secondly with a lot of uh, conversations with many different people to take guidance and advice and their involvement in it and to find a range of partners to do that work with and we've now started 
those conversations, those relationships, to build those relationships. And we're doing it with care and with respect. Um, where that will all lead to would be, would be premature to say. So, so telling the contemporary history, I think, will, will be done with, with care and with a lot of people involved. At the same time, however, we will be opening up to the public a wonderful garden of over 100 acres, which in itself is just going to provide a fabulous uh, resource for everyone to enjoy. Uh, and I hope that people at that level will just come to it and, and love it. Yeah, uh, that uh, that's very very exciting and and rich and and I I do think that it that you've touched upon another uh, aspect of what makes museums often uh, so so special is that they can play uh, the role of convener of neutral and safe site. Uh, for people to to share uh, uh, share individual experiences and come to a more empathetic understanding of of uh, each other, uh, that and I think that that is one of the the rich areas that uh, that this project can pursue. And it sounds as if you're doing it in some very thoughtful and sensitive ways. You know, Michael, but I can't let you off the off off the show here without us talking about you know sort of the uh, the the other specter is that you know there seems at least in this country I know there there is a a real struggle and uh, a beginning of a subtle shift in this idea of how you tell a story in a historic property. You know, many of the historic properties, uh, as are the royal palaces, they are the homes of the very very wealthy and privileged, and how do you uh, tell uh, tell a story or make those you know wonderful uh, objects and wonderful buildings relevant to uh, a contemporary um, uh, contemporary audience? How do, how do you find a broader story? I, uh, one of the biggest changes I think that we've worked on at, at HRP over the last decade has been to move the focus of our thinking away from just being interested in the buildings and their collections and their landscapes and um, to the, the idea that through all of our sites run the most extraordinary individual stories that collectively add up to the story of a nation and that those stories are of incredibly, you know, senior people, hired people at a, an elevated level in society, the monarchs, the kings, the queens, the lords, but also that it's, it's also about the impact that their actions have had on the society that's been created in this country over a thousand years. So it's not just a story about kings and queens, but it's a story of actually the whole of the British people, uh, because that interaction between monarchs and people has been such a, uh, a driving idea in creating the country that we have have over the last a thousand years. And I think the other important thing is that, that whatever status somebody has in society, they're always all people, and people have stories of love and despair and triumph and disaster and happiness and misery and uh, poverty and wealth, and um, and all of those, those are human emotions, they're fundamental human emotions, and those human stories have played out in extraordinary richness in, in our palaces, and our challenge has been to, to find ways to let those stories live again, uh, and to work with a 
very wide range of different creative people um, to bring different approaches to interpretation and storytelling to bear on our palaces. Uh, and we've done some um, quite unusual things in, 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 that, in the last 10 years to, to try and make that happen, um, and often to, to powerful effect. Uh, can you give uh, can you give me uh, an example of uh, of one of the more unusual, uh, uh, sort of out there but successful um, interpretive ideas you've used? Yes. So, so one thing we did um, in in leading up to 2012, we did a major new, major restoration and representation project of one of our palaces, Kensington Palace. And while the palace, while the work was happening, we were faced with either having to close it or open up a bit of it in an incomplete way. Um, and we we thought it would be good to keep access going. So we conceived the notion that while the palace, while the builders were in, the palace's foundations were not literally. But, but metaphorically being shaken and the stories of the palace were tumbling out and Kensington has a whole series of stories of princesses who had often quite tragic and sad lives going right, right the way back to the 18th century and through, and through to more recent times and we decided to evoke their lives with a, um, a theatre company um, and we created a site specific uh, theatre installation uh, working with, with actors and writers and artists and lighting designers and our curators um, called the Enchanted Palace. Um, and it was uh, quite an extraordinary two-year installation, which allowed us to experiment with a range of different approaches that we would never have tried otherwise, and which have since then, uh, some of which have come into our more sort of permanent practice, some of which we just tried and, and have left there. But that installation over two years brought us a completely new audience, a much younger audience. Um, it, it brought us a review in the New York Times, which we've never had before, and it was a good one too. Um, and, and it enabled us to to experiment with storytelling in ways that we've never tried before. Um, and, uh, and it, it moves our audience response, which is normally in the happily indifference. You know, I mean, so many people who go to so many museums and historic sites are kind of broadly happy with their, their experience and then forget about it, to the most amazing range from people who said this has been the most wonderful thing I've ever done in my life to other people who said this is a disgrace and you shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a historic site. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's, that's what, that's what happens when you're, when you're doing uh, you know, something controversial. Michael, this has been an absolutely wonderful discussion. I, uh, I am just thrilled uh, that we had this opportunity to chat and reconnect. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, we will be back next week with another installment of uh, Museum Life. Uh, remember to drop me a line if you think that there's something we should be talking about. This is Carol Bossert. I'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.